Hello, Linsiders. Welcome to another episode. This will be posting on May 13th, episode 10, with Tope Nguyen. I am very happy to have Tope with me today, and we share a great conversation about her career from advertising to screenwriting and how she writes on various publications on matters covering the entire diaspora of the Asian diaspora. A lot of times we hear the saying that the Asian diaspora is not a monolith, but certain groups of the Asian diaspora, particularly East Asian, are much more covered in media. And as you will hear, one of Tope's specific missions and her work is talking about her perspectives as a Vietnamese American and the perspectives of the Southeast Asians and why and how it is a different perspective. And having the voice to share those stories, which are very important. I was so happy to have the conversation with her. She's amazing. She talks also about the efforts that she has made in mentorship and in boosting the career of young writers, women of color, who need their voices elevated and need better and more opportunities to be humanized, to have their stories told. So sit tight and enjoy this episode from the amazing Tope Nguyen. Let me know what you think. Please hit me up on social media. Let me know what you thought of this episode. It is also, as you may know, Asian Pacific Heritage Month. There are a number of events going on. I'm going to link to a couple in the, in the show notes so you can see there's a ton of programming for this month. So please check some of that out. Without further ado, here's my conversation. Hello, welcome to The Linsider, episode 10. I have Tope with me today. Tope, welcome to The Linsider. Thank you for spending time with me on your Friday afternoon before the weekend. Well, thank you for having me hang out with you. Jason, it's a privilege for you to have me hang out with you on a Friday. It is a privilege for me. Yeah, thank you so much. So I, how did we connect? I think I connected with you on, you're like a Twitter friend that I made during the quarantine. Who's this amazing writer and advocate for the Asian diaspora? And I think I DM'd you and you just, we just connected and we got on a Zoom and I was like, Tope is awesome and we need uh, a thousand more people like you. Are you sure? No, I, I, thought, I just thought I was a, a wolf who tweeted unpopular opinions, but here we are because here we are. Along. Yeah. So tell, like, you know, tell us about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. 
Great, thank you. And I was born in Vietnam, and I am currently in Los Angeles, even though mentally I'm usually elsewhere, like in New Orleans or back in New York or in London, but I'm bodily in Los Angeles mm. and at my computer, and my bread and butter is magazine writing. So I'm yes. an essayist for various places, The Daily Beast, The Los Angeles Times, uh, a few pieces for PBS for the rollout of the documentary, Asian Americans, and uh, mm -hmm. whoever will have me. That's great. And so you mentioned you're from Vietnam, but one thing that I really appreciated from your bio is not you spent time in Vietnam and also you spent time living in Europe. I did. I, I started with being born in Gunta, Vietnam, and then I actually escaped with my parents and my uncle on a tiny boat some of their wow. friends and we were in refugee camps in Malaysia and Indonesia and then we were sponsored to the U.S. So my early childhood was in North Carolina and then we moved to Southern Maryland. I went back to school out of state uh, undergrad in North Carolina and that's wow. after that I moved to London, England, did some work and then came mm. back stateside to New York City to continue working. And can you sh share a little bit about that and what I mean, what I think is interesting to share and to hear about your experience is that having that global experience, you know, being born in Asia, it sounds like you had some, even though you were super young, it was harsh and maybe difficult, but also it sounds like you were old enough where it had left some impression on you. And then you also spent some time in Europe. Can you just talk about what it means to you to have that sort of international experience? How do you feel that that's shaped you, who you are today? Yeah, I wish I could remember uh, Vietnam, but I wasn't even born in a hospital, so I'm not even sure that there is a record of me. And my parents, you know, had to sell everything they owned, so it was very, very difficult times. They were both school teachers before, and then you know they came to the U.S. and had to change their careers. But mm -hmm. for me, you know, being able to live in Europe and look back at America, you see more clearly how the rest of the world might view the U.S. Because news doesn't even travel, even in this day and age, as much as we think across boundaries, like we rarely know what's going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I have to be informed. It doesn't automatically, you know, get presented to us and vice versa too. You know, there are huge headlines that might cross the seas, but I see more and more media trying to bridge those gaps. So it's interesting over the span of time, like how we receive information and how we view it, depending on, on where our feet are at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, during these last few months with COVID and everyone being stuck home, did you happen to come across Nigel Ng and what he did with Uncle Roger? Oh, the rice. Yes. What was he doing with the rice? The skits. Like, did you see any of that? I did. I, I recall now, you know, one of my dogs is named Roger. So I was like, Uncle Roger, that's actually my dog's nickname, Uncle Roger. So when I, <laughs> that stuck in my memory. He was, was he making fun of people cooking rice? Is that all, right? Yeah. All the, all the, all the famous chefs like Jamie Oliver and there's a number of other oh, that, yeah. how they cook rice and yeah, mm -hmm. just didn't I, know how to cook. Asian yes. <laughs> I see that in my diaspora. And also someone I know, Jenny Yang, made a show called Bad Appetite, like Bon uh -huh. Appetit, but uh -huh. bad. Yeah. So it was like how white people mess up or bastardize Asian food. And you see it every day. They try to call something a bun mi salad. And this is from oh, uh, Tina Kwak. Oh, gosh. But they put in Napa cabbage and miso dressing. I'm like, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Sure, we love all other Asian food. I do. I'll eat, I'll eat any Asian food. But mm. 
please don't put miso dressing in my benmi because that's <laughs> Japanese and we're not a monolith and neither is our food. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. We'll just move right along. <laughs> oh, is this about film? Okay. Yeah. And thanks for that um, introduction on your background. What, when you were growing up, what were some of your childhood favorites in terms of pop culture, music, movies, actors? Well, I tell you, it was not New Kids on the Block like my neighbors. I didn't fall for that stuff. I never okay. owned a New Kids on the Block pillowcase like they Good did. For you. Thank you. I enjoyed, you know, E.T. I saw E.T. Yeah. in the theater as a child, and, and that was mind-blowing. Because you know how people love to say, you know, Asian, Asian diaspora people are aliens, and we're so alienated. <laughs> so I think that really resonated as a oh, no. child. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's another topic. I, you know, enjoyed Care Bears and My Little Pony. Wow. Stuff I was given. I had Barbies and G.I. Joe. I'm trying to think, mm -hmm. like, what you and I would have uh, shared well, E.T. I love. I also loved one of my favorite films growing up was Back to the Future, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Dead Poets Society. Yes. I, I, I know someone who's in that movie, Gail Hansen, and he's a wonderful man. Oh, he's good. A, a, a true ally. And um, he was it's in. It's always Dead nice Poets to hear Society. that because usually I don't want to meet people that we look up to because I've met a bunch of terrible ones. <laughs> That's the thing in movies, too. That's like a writing thing. It's like the, the main character, the protagonist, meets their hero and then gets mm -hmm. disappointed. That's actually mm -hmm. taught in writing class as like mm -hmm. a thing that it's, happens. It's generally true, I would say. It's always a surprise when they're not terrible. Yeah, or it's like seeing a band live. You're like, you don't sound like the studio version. Give me the studio version. <laughs> Who are your favorite bands then? Not New Kids. Right. You know, I used to work for a couple bands doing internet stuff for them. So I enjoyed some wow. of my clients like Depeche Mode and Garbage. No that kind way. Of stuff. Mm -hmm. I've ridden That's the elevator cool. with Dave Kahan. Mm -hmm. My dog has met Shirley Manson's dog. So my dog wow. has met more celebrities than I have. I just stand aside and let her have her. When you have a dog, time. I think the dog is usually the, you know, the center of attention. Oh, yes. My dog's made out with Ryan Gosling. And I was like, go for it, B. <laughs> Share some DNA with that man. Go, I'm turning, my, I'm turning my head the other direction. So, but yes, I had a good time. And so I enjoy, you know, good in industrial music. And who else? The mm -hmm. Cure. I've yeah. seen The Cure a few times. Wow. I made a tiny documentary at a Cure show. I ran from some security guards because I wasn't supposed to have a video camera back then. Oh, wow. Where was this? This was at Jones Beach, New York, outside of the city. Yeah, and, uh, we just talked to fans of the Cure. I had was it uh, three friends with me, and I had just. I mean, you were you were promoting them basically. Right? They wish I'd put videos of them out, so it is out exactly. now. And no one has come a knock in, but it's a piece of history. It's called Goth Parking Lot, kind of like Heavy Metal Parking Lot, which was a a cult classic from two guys from Maryland. And I wrote those guys. I said, "Hey, Krulik and Hain, can I make Goth Parking Lot? Because you know I grew up watching Heavy Metal Parking Lot and knowing about your lore." And they said please do. And their quote was, the goths are the brethren of the metalheads. Mm. Interesting. Can we find this online, like on YouTube or something? Yes. Uh, you can okay, Google goth, goth parking lot and it will come. All right. Up. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, yes. They're people of on. color fans I, of The Cure who talk. Yeah. That's one of the things about music, right? Music really unites everyone. I grew up loving like rock music and hip hop and R&B. And when you go to shows, like, you see everyone, right? 
Totally. And I loved going to live shows, you know, pre-COVID, of course. And I, I worked in the hip hop world with my wonderful boss, still my friend, Al Smith. We worked uh, at 75 Arc during the days of Dr. Octagon. And yeah, I've seen some things. Mm. I got to ride the elevator with another hip hop figure that I will not mention. Stuff. And talk a little bit about, so you started your career in advertising. Is that correct? In New York, yeah, one of my first situations out of college was working with a woman named Marjorie Ellis Thompson at Saatchi and Saatchi in London, and I didn't see one. And okay. uh, Hamish Pringle was our our lead guy at that camp at the time, and they both taught me invaluable things. Hamish Pringle brought me coffee. I was the assistant, and I, I you know, I called him out publicly on it. I said, Hamish, you brought me coffee. How dare you? And he's like, you know what? My boss taught me that. Like he never made me bring him coffee. So that what? was an, am- an amazing, oh, amazing. thing. Oh. You know, this is. And who like, is he? I mean, for, I don't know who he is. And for listeners who don't know who is, he sounds like a legend. He is. Look him up in advertising. Hamish Pringle, like the potato okay. chips, like Pringles. And okay. he ran Saatchi and Saatchi in the okay. day. And then he's gone on to work you know, with his own agencies and Marjorie Thompson. So she was there. She's an American expat from Long Beach. Brilliant woman. She started the first cause-related marketing department in the world, housed there. And Hmm. I came to work for them because I was a public policy major interested in causes. So, you know, we talked to brands and we talked to nonprofits and, you know, tried to pair them together to Robin Hood some money into helping less fortunate people. That's great. And how did you make your way then from there to being a writer today? Oh my goodness. Well, I didn't see it coming and I didn't plan on it. I mean, I always knew I was a a writer as a child. Like I wrote books about fish or small animals in elementary school. So I enjoyed the act of writing and I I took, I read a lot. I I read a lot and I took writing classes in college. One of my teachers told me I was sucked. So I didn't care. I kept writing and uh, she was mean. And (laughs) And then, you know, after Saatchi and Saatchi, I did continue to work in New York City, 42nd Street, like, uh, you know, FCB, Foot Cone and Belding and other various advertising stints. And it was when 9-11 happened that Mm. I said, I will stop being that young person on the track to a corner office CMO type of situation. I'll be a young person, just go work in a restaurant. You know, I knew someone in Los Angeles uh, who had people out here. So I went and I was like, yeah, this is going to be temporary. <laughs> I hate LA. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I uh, actually started working at a nightclub. I worked in the Echo on Sunset Boulevard in Echo Park. Yeah. So I was a, go- a go-go dancer. And then I met through, I have evidence, uh, people vouch for me and photographic evidence because uh, I worked in clubs in New York City when I wasn't working in advertising. I worked Amazing. my second, third jobs in nightclubs. Right outside yeah. the office to get by. And so, yeah, the Echo is where one of my co-go-go dancers at the time was dating Dustin Lance Black, who won an Oscar for Milk. Yeah. And so one of their friends was looking for someone sharp to be their assistant on a Jerry Bruckheimer television show. No so way. I went to be his assistant and uh, the show got canceled, but we're all still friends. So I assisted um, Vincent Ngo, who uh, wrote Hancock. 
Michael okay. Mann and my other boss yeah. is named Evan Chernoff and I adore them both and we still keep in touch. So it was my introduction to television writing. I was green. Like they really took a chance on me. They had to explain things like, what is a honey wagon? And I was like, please don't let it be something perverted. So I had to, <laughs> I, I learned on the job. I was like, oh, okay. That's where you get the, the good stuff on a set. Right. So I lived in the office. I lived in my car and I lived in set uh, on wow. set, had a pillow. <laughs> Because I could barely be home to wash my own laundry. So it was a right. good trial by fire and kept me busy, ultra distracted. And that was my big introduction to people make a lot of money doing this, don't they? People. I saw the budgets. Some people, yeah. not not me, not the assistant. Mm-hmm. Some people. But yeah. So then I get there. <laughs> yeah. Ready. It's starting. But yeah, after that, I, you know, took some of that money and I went to night school at UCLA. Ah. And yeah, weirdly at the time I have sustained myself with the most bizarre things. Also at the time, like I got laid off and then a director named Frederick Bond was looking for an Asian female who could do basketball tricks. They couldn't find one anywhere for some strange reason in the world. So again, I got thrown into this weird situation and taft Hartley again against my will because I could play basketball. I mean, I did my, you know, I did go to Michael Jordan's school. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I went to the MJZ office with my dunks and and dribbled behind my back and ran around my gear. Did you play like growing up, like in high school and everything or? A little bit in high school, but not, you know, I I wasn't that good. Um, Right. But you knew your (laughs) way. I knew what I was doing. Yeah. So I knew knew my way enough to be in this bizarre award-winning commercial for Frederick Bond for a British company called Three Mobile, where I'm a milkmaid with giant hands and, so I, again, just kept getting weird jobs that, that that paid my way so I could go to UCLA night school and pay for extension. So I, I love my teachers there, honestly, okay. and I still keep in touch with them, too. Some of us are Twitter friends, my yeah. old professors. And then I just, you know, figured I could churn out around 90 pages at a time somehow. I never could do that before, to be honest with you. And I got hooked. I was like, 90 pages, I can do this again. It might be terrible, but I can do it again. And it was self-entertainment because I lived where TV reception did not reach me. So <laughs> I had to keep myself busy. You know? But what was it that made you want to go to do the night school? Because, I mean, okay, so I love everything that you've said and your whole background. And it was actually really helpful to hear it because I read your bio on your website. And there are things in there that you just said verbally that are so amazing, the little details that are not, that are, that, 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 that are missed a little bit. It's it, written. Right. So I loved having you share that um, with people. But how did you like what was it inside that motivated you to go take those classes? Because, you know, a lot, not a lot. But I mean, by the way, you could write that story of you coming to Hollywood into a character for a television series. That would be amazing to see from a Asian American woman's point of view. Oh, gosh, Um, thank you. But not everyone decides that they're gonna go to school and become a writer. What was it for you that made you do that? I thought I would do it right. You know, I both of my parents were teachers. I, I revere school. I thought I would spend the rest of my life in school as academic, then I snapped out of it. But yeah, it was a good mm. experience for me because honestly, I probably needed to get out of the house after mm. you know my 15 hours of job hunting on Craigslist or whatever. And I did that to myself in London too. I forced myself to go out of my apartment because I often live by myself because I like Mm. it that way. 
in a studio somewhere. So I was like, I need to go outdoors. I need to drive around the city. Mm-hmm. Used it from being an assistant. So and be around human beings mm-hmm. and, and and nail down things like structure. You know, mm-hmm. not just like whatever I fancy, but I wanted to, you know, besides learning the whole how to collate salmon pages and different things like that, but also know for myself, like, why did the people I work for get paid the big bucks? And that wasn't my motivation, mm-hmm. but I, I mm-hmm. wanted to know everything to save everyone more time. Like, how does a professional writer work? Like, how do you know the ins and outs and all the formatting even just to make life easier for everybody else. Yeah. And for writers coming up today, do you think that still applies or do you think things have changed so much with, you know, online courses and social media? Oh, yes, absolutely. And there's so many supportive writers communities I see on Twitter where we met Mm -hmm. still where people help each other and people uh, trade reads and, you know, help each other break things down. And so if you can get a copy of Final Draft or whatever, and then you can make some friends online and form writers groups or have people, you know, kick you in the ass enough to get to your 90 pages. They're out there. So I just made a friend of mine actually yesterday, Eddie Hamill, join Twitter because he wants, you know, writer friends and a little better push. And I said, you know, people are very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what you make of it. There are a lot of scary mm-hmm. people online, obviously. But yeah, if you want a supportive community, it's out there. And you don't have mm. to trudge to Westwood and <laughs> right. you don't have to be professionally trained because you see now, interestingly, so many people just decide they want to be on TV or something. And then magically they learn how to write. And yeah. They right. Like, I'm still getting my head around. I think, is it Michaela Cole? Like, did her show start from a Twitter thing? Oh, she was a chewing gum first. And there was a different Twitter thing, a movie called Zola. Who's just started? Who, That's the one. The, the film started as a, I think it was like 128 tweets or something. That's what I was thinking of. Sorry. And she she's uh, told a story and then A24 picked it up as a film, got a couple writers to make it into a full-fledged script. And then that film, uh, directed by uh, Jansica Bravo, I'm supposed to interview soon, got into Sundance. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. And then talk about the, speaking of writer communities online think, talk a little bit about the one that you have. How did it start? And what is the mission? And talk about some of the people that have been involved. You got it. Wow. Um, Again, it's one of those things I didn't see coming. I tiptoed around the tech world once and I was in an accelerator in Santa Monica, a pre-accelerator to learn how to be a startup founder. And there I participated in a program where venture capitalists spoke to women. They each VC firm chose eight women to talk with, to learn, mm-hmm. get, to, get to know us. And I thought it is really that easy just to get to know people as a human being. You don't mm-hmm. have to give them money, but you don't have to say yes to anything. But let's be friends and down the road, you never know. Mm-hmm. You know all, all no's are just no for right now, not yep. no's forever. So it's yep. kind of one of those things and it humanized women. <laughs> I know, revolutionary. So I thought, geez, I had a positive experience. Let me apply that to Hollywood, something that totally dehumanizes women of color. And let's help everyone know what it's like to humanize women of color better. Mm-hmm. So again, it's just like making friends. We um, have all kinds of mentors from a VP of a massive studio to so many A-list showrunners to all kinds of producers of films you've 
heard of (laughs) that are at the biggest festivals and a huge box office. I mean, it's mind blowing, honestly, even for me to know what mentors are so kind enough to take their time. So they each get eight women of color and they can dedicate as much time as they want. Sometimes it just opens with a 15 minute phone call. And then some of our mentors actually conduct classes with all eight of their mentees or they have sessions every hmm. classes. Yeah, they, you know, they have these open doors and they can check back in, they can get script notes, they can get career advice, or sometimes, honestly, I've heard sometimes they just talk about baseball. I was like, okay. (laughs) So, you know, these uh, women of color, we love baseball like everybody else. And then I, exactly, I heard, you know, one of my uh, mentors and mentees both bonded over the fact they they both got hit by a car recently. So it's. I know, yeah. I know. It's uh, So, I mean, I'm lucky too. I have mentors and now, you know, all the mentors have eight new friends outside of their social economic situations, strata or whatever have you. And how does it work? How do you, how do, how do writers, you know, join and how do you get mentors to do this? It sounds like there's a lot of time involved potentially. Oh, so much time. But what you do, good question, is you go to www. Start with the number eight, because we're Asian, hollywood.com. Okay. And you can sign up. We have Google Forms. We're a big fan of Google Forms that feed into Airtable. We're very lucky to be sponsored by Airtable. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful Menanda Reaper and Shelby Covant run the show, and they help everyone get in touch with everybody else. And we're actually wow. getting... AI to help match our next round. Again, mind blown. We have what wonderful gals who have an AI company, women okay. of color in AI have yeah. stepped in and I would love to tell you their names soon, but I don't have access at this very second. Yeah. We're yeah. stepping in to help Manon and Shelby okay. do what they were doing manually by matching people by interest, by reading their bios, like really getting to know these people, the mentors and the women of color. Now, AI, they're going to go over after the AI matches too, but yeah. again, mind-blowing. You know, just yeah, to aid and assist not to replace, right? Exactly, right. We're still yeah. going to have our, our human components. And again, I don't know, maybe I'm just amicable and special, but, you know, I just ask people very nicely and with good manners and respect to their boundaries and their right. time if they would like to do it. And, you know, I've asked some people and they just said yes, and that's what got the ball, the ball rolling with casting Elway's. Wow you know, who always has a horse in the race with this past year mm-hmm. with Andrew Day and the U.S. versus Billy Holiday. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was mentor number one. Wow. And since then, we've just gotten so many more people of Cassian's caliber. So we're very lucky that people who believe in real change and that the future is the most marginalized, we need to churn up a bit and just at least get to know each other because yep. you never know who knows who in this world. And who really wants to help. So yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. trying to give access and the mentees don't have to pay for anything. Like this has been totally volunteer. Wow. It's, it's yeah, I, I don't even, I barely have words for how amazing it's been that under a calendar year that we've gotten that many women of color into these digital rooms or who have gotten read, who've gotten reps, agents, managers. One of the most massive distribution deals through Byron Allen's company, Endless. Oh, wow. Uh, we got a showrunner. 
one wow. of our mentees got a interview as a showrunner and now she's gonna run a show so i no mean way. i feel bad yes she is yeah. so um i'm pitching a magazine article about it too a, a massive magazine i've been taking yeah. under the wing of an editor so hopefully we can reveal uh, more about her and what she's going to run and what she thinks of all that and how it stemmed mm. from Start With Eight Hollywood. So I feel bad for people who restrict people from participating in these programs because, you know, they're, they work. And how long have you been doing this? Gosh, it only started like last July or something. Oh, that's, wait, so like less than a year ago? Yeah. Oh, that's when I kind of got to know you. I know, pretty crazy, you, right? You must have been promoting it and that's how I saw it somewhere. And then I reached out to you. I, that's, wow. Well, good for you. I love that. And good. I hope you can, I hope you make this the huge thing and it goes for, you know, ever. Well, you know what? It's, it has legs and the longevity is happening because we partner with the British Film Institute in England mm. and we have great partners there. So we're going to replicate the program in the UK and it's already been replicated by the amazing Murray Peters. She's in Canada. Okay. So we have a Canadian edition of the exact same Hollywood American edition. Wow. And we may get to other territories because we've been talking to people like Australia. Maybe yeah, I was going to say, uh, we're going to have, I'm going to have to chat with you and I would love to bring, I mean, do you have any partners besides, I mean, Australia is in Asia kind of any other partners in Asia, whether it's Japan, Korea, Vietnam, China, I, Hong Kong, actually, Taiwan. Talked to two producers from Australia. One of them is from Korea, but we have not gotten, you know, fully in there yet because we're mm -hmm. still processing UK, America, and Canada at the same mm -hmm. time. All three of those will be running at the same time this summer. And uh, so then <laughs> we'll take a breather and then, you know, we'll get back to seeing who we can work with, who believes well, in the same things everywhere else. I mean, good for you. I did not know that that initiative was so new. And yeah, as you expand, I can only imagine, yes, you need for it to not only have people to help you, sponsors, as you mentioned, AI, <laughs> as you mentioned, but otherwise I can, t I can imagine even just finding these partners takes, you know, so much time and mm -hmm. vetting and meetings yes. and conversations. Precisely. We want to make sure we have the right people and that women of color are always centered and out front. Wow. Well, good for you. And I think I believe in karma. And so I believe that's going to be amazing karma for you and for the folks that are involved. Yes. I mean, so many great things like Mananda Reaper has gotten her agent and has gotten a gig from it. And I've gotten a wonderful gig from it. And so yeah, we're very lucky, but more so, you know, more importantly, our gals have hope and they're out yeah. there and we have more plans to be able to reach more people, more newbies to the industry and just be more welcoming and actually make it a warm place instead of a bizarre, isolating place. Yeah, I think a little bit at a time, you know, we can't change things overnight, but 1% change adds up over, you know, the days, years and, you know, et cetera. And so that's just something you do, you know, as a part of everything else that you do. But the main thing is you are a writer and do you focus on either features or television or do you want to do a little bit of both because uh, you also do your magazine writing so you do a lot of writing a lot yes I, i'm racking up the thousands and thousands of words that's okay i get a really good 
per word right now. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's good because it all lends to each other, honestly. Yes. You know, a lot of my magazine writing, the topics have to do with my features and it, mm -hmm. it's all interwoven subject wise or my personal through line. So I focus on features. I enjoy okay. that the most. Mm -hmm. Having been a television assistant, mm -hmm. uh, but mostly because I'm an introvert, it's very difficult for me to always be mm -hmm. around a dozen people for very long amounts of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, features is, is more my thing because I can control my pace better, but I'm not opposed to television if it's the right situation. I've been sent out for a couple television things or, you know, I did a television style round table recently and it was an amazing experience. So just to hear different people's viewpoints, because when you're real time, you get to build off of each other. Oh, and off of what, you know, so-and-so said, I have this mm -hmm. idea. So that wasn't really enjoyable. Writing in a vacuum is its own joy. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so again, being around human beings once in a while. And uh, yeah, magazine writing, it's a juggle because for a lot of articles, I might talk to a dozen sources and I have to keep them all straight mm -hmm. and sometimes even help, you know, get images for the story for our artist, you know, at the various publications. And yeah, it, it's a lot. So even though I'm just sitting at my desk with a couple of dogs often, I'm fielding like, you know, 12 emails per article, three editors per article, up to that many. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's, it's real, real work. And what's, what, what's the main publication you write for right now? The Daily Beast. Okay. Uh, yeah. Got Feels it. like yeah. home. So. That's good. Um, yeah. I, and, I value that. And I think one of the things that I think is so important is that interdisciplinary perspective that you talk about, how you say that the magazine writing and what you're doing in features, it all connects. And even the lessons that you learned from that tech incubator or that tech meeting that you went to, you applied that thinking and mindset into <laughs> Hollywood and screenwriting. I think that's so important because there are great ideas and best practices everywhere. And they are related, right? They are, even though people think that they're totally separate, if someone like you draws the dotted lines between two things that seemingly don't connect, like that's something new and innovative. Yes, there's, it's an interesting marriage, to be honest, between Hollywood and tech. There's so much crossover now because tech companies fund film companies, tech mm -hmm. people fund creators. Mm -hmm. There's just a, a blur and the same discrimination problems or the same <laughs> gender issue problems affect both fields. So there's yeah. that. And then, I mean, yeah, you got to watch out for these writers because like for me, whatever made me feel funny, I put into a screenplay called <laughs> Tran versus Silicon Beach. So about being a woman of color founder, I wrote a satire about the whole situation and, and being a woman of color in what Emily Chang calls Brotopia. So, mm -hmm. you know, you know, white boy founders have a different reality than someone like me who mm -hmm. on a daily basis gets the microaggression. So not just the, the sexism, but the racism, but add to that the white feminism, add to that the inter-Asian weirdness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because people have no idea what women of color go through. And so I want right. to bring that to light and change it through Start With It Hollywood, but also through my screenplay about a woman of color struggles in 
that industry. Yeah. So tell me of the screenplays that you've written, because you've written many. Where where do you and you're you know, you're you're writing more and you're getting them produced, but where does the where do the ideas come from? And what are the type of characters and stories that you gravitate towards? You know, I tell people that when I was younger and had less life experience, I like to write really cutesy rom-coms that were just quote unquote mm-hmm. that dreaded word quirky. But then as I lived more and more in the world, I started to write more horror because people horrified me. So my mom was like, oh, do you hate someone? Just kill them in a script. So I started writing horror to- Wait, your mom? <laughs> that was yeah. from your mom? Yeah, she's got so many gems. I was gonna she, say, your mom there. is cool. Oh, I'm sending you to my mom because <laughs> she has ideas and she knows things. But that's, <laughs> that's another subject. She is the coolest, most aware. Vietnamese woman. I have oh, amazing. Keeps yeah, me she, does, she deserves to be a hero in a movie. Oh, hell yeah, she does. And yeah. she, she's remarkable. I'm an extremely watered down version of my parents, but not just as an Asian, but for me, like I'm fully aware I represent myself and my name, but also my parents. So mm-hmm. if someone misbehaves or is rude, I'm like, who are your parents? Because my mom would be having none of that. <laughs> or my dad. Mm-hmm. Or my dogs. But yeah, so a lot of my ideas come from how would I have liked to see it? in real life, how I would have changed it, uh, wish fulfillment, exposure to bad people, and, you know, how you can be the hero of your own story. Not always me, literally, but Mm -hmm. someone like me. And I give full credit, honestly, to a director named Lexi Alexander, who's Palestinian-German. We have known each other for a while, and she has directed some good ass-kicking movies and shows. And she said to me one day, hey, I challenge you to actually write a Vietnamese-American woman lead instead of this open Mm. ethnicity crap. (laughs) Mm. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And then I just didn't stop doing it. So now I have a good little stack of screenplays that are specifically Vietnamese-American women leads, Mm. not just Asian-American. Because that's the perspective, again, I hate to be cheesy, but write what you know. I know how people treat me, mm. so I can speak to that because it's my lived experience. Because so many people have tried to cut down my lived experience and tell me things didn't happen that way to me. Racism mm. doesn't exist. Microaggressions don't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, Asian, Asian bullying doesn't exist. I'm like, I got receipts and it does exist. And it also exists in the screenplay now because my mama said, you're going to get it on paper. <laughs> So that's a lot of, yeah, it used to be when I was upset, it was very easy for me to write. And I, I used to think, gosh, I need to write when I'm happy too. Mm-hmm. I need to find other fuels that drive me or how to process my life. Like many other writers, you know, how to process things that happen to you. Mm-hmm. You put it on the page. For sure. It's, there's a cathartic process. That's And then because you're writing is specific and you're writing from what you know and that Vietnamese American and women experience what do you find yourself having to do anything to make sure that the characters the stories they are relatable or is that something you care about or how do you because you know you hear about that like if you I'm sure if you've gotten people to read them whether they're screenwriting competitions or studio execs they'll give you some version of this Mm. comment, right? Especially because you're writing from a woman of color's perspective. 
how do you respond to that? And then also, how do you, you know, write this character and the stories? How do you, how do you make sure, or how do you think about that to make sure that you know people doesn't matter, like in Africa or in China or in Japan, like they totally get what you're trying to say. Mm -hmm. Excellent question, and here's your answer. And I'm glad you brought up that last part too, because I do watch movies from Japan or Africa, and uh, what I can imbue is that. Like many people have probably already said too, my central characters, they've been downtrodden. They've had their hearts broken. They've been trampled. They've been backstabbed by their own kind. They understand what my skin folk mm -hmm. aren't my kin folk means. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's so many of us out there who have these experiences, but we're afraid to talk about it because people try to tamp it down. You know, if you're the, the nail that sticks up, they'll try to hammer you down, especially if you're mm -hmm. a woman of color who speaks up about all kinds of things. So... That is what I tell people. Look, if I can watch movies about white people who get shit on, I can write <laughs> and relate to it. I can write about yeah. a Vietnamese American woman who gets constantly shit on and people yeah. will be able to relate to that because I can relate to all kinds of things that I watch. I can find things that, yes, this is a commonality. This has happened to me. But to be honest, I watch movies about people of color. And of course, I can relate more to different kinds of people of color and women of color in films than I can white protagonists of all kinds. It's, it's a very interesting thing. I feel I hear what you're saying. But what I what I what I mean, what I find interesting is that, you know, growing up, that's basically what Hollywood has fed you just, you know, a certain type of protagonist. And we all feel that they're so relatable, right? But then now when you, or you're kind of, that's the message that you're given. But now that when you try to put something different, they're like, oh, it's not relatable. <laughs> and you're like, well, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, the one movie I've seen over and over again, because you know that big joke is that there are only 13 movies in Hollywood and mm -hmm. we only see variations of those in different yeah. settings. No, the white boy's from Kansas, but no, this time he's from New York City, but it's the same story. The one story I can't relate to is, hi, I'm a 35-year-old white man who doesn't like my age, and I feel the need to sleep with a 21-year-old co-ed from college. I have seen that movie with different titles, and that is the kind of stuff I can't relate to anymore. <laughs> there are a lot of those, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or I only hang out with people who look like me in a big city, it's like when you see those movies, it's just like the entire cast is only white people who speak in the movie and all the people of color are subservient. They're made, right. they're a nail technician. Again, I will draw the same criticism from Asian people who live in big cities and also have no black friends, for instance. That's a point that, you know, is pretty clear to me recently. So if we're going to examine white people <laughs> who have no black friends, let's look at ourselves and see, you know, <laughs> how sure. we can be more inclusive and acknowledge yeah. that more kinds of people also live in big cities or smaller towns that aren't just Asian as well. So I integrate this idea that is in real life a thing that yes, black people and Asian people are actually friends from my real lived experience. Oh, so, oh yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely. And like, there's a lot of historical examples oh yes of that definitely as well right right people have no um, idea no because we don't show them and we don't talk about them and we don't celebrate them and yeah we need to figure out how to make that happen and 
One question I didn't have for you, because as I was preparing for our time together, I did look at your Twitter feed. And can you just talk about, because today you mentioned you brought, today is the anniversary of the fall of Saigon. Is that correct? That's right. And, and tomorrow is May Day. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, so I want to ask you about that because I don't feel that I really understand the significance or the importance of that. And so I would just like to have you kind of share that so I understand that and people that listen to this can have some context and learn about that. Definitely. Yes. And they both happened, of course, across the world from each other, but both events have severely impacted my life personally. And I think many people as well. And, you know, I, as you stated, I think that many Americans of all kinds of generations might not be completely aware mm-hmm. of what they mean. And for me, you know, the fall of Saigon historically is when the North Vietnamese communists uh, took over and the South Vietnamese uh, fled in all kinds of ways. Uh, that was 1975, April 30th. So we do honor mm. that. You know, there are a lot of thought pieces and it's going to be the 50th anniversary of the fall of Saigon in 2025. Mm. So get your Vietnamese American woman movies in now, in production now for mm-hmm. this 50th anniversary that will be all over the press. And That's right. uh, if not for the war, I wouldn't be here. Again, Mm -hmm. my parents remind me if there was no American war in Vietnam, I might be working in a rice paddy or be a school teacher and not here hanging out with Mr. Jason Lin. Or you might be a billionaire and just rocking it in Vietnam and having your own little empire. You know, there could be a lot of different versions of that story. (laughs) I I would be a billionaire. They're evil. But if I had to (laughs) away most of my wealth and if I ever had. You'd be one of the good. You'd be one of the good ones. And make them work. Yes. Which which (laughs) lends into May Day. Because I participated in May Day marches. Again, this is based around the origin story of May Day. I wrote a screenplay about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened in Chicago in 1886. The world celebrates May Day on May 1st, but the actual event that brought on the concept of May Day, which you know is about advocating for workers' rights, happened on May 4th, 1886. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Haymarket Affair, and it involves an American couple who are interracial. The woman is said to be Native American, Black, and uh, Latinx, Latinx, and the man is a white guy. Mm-hmm. And then a German immigrants, labor activists, they bonded and then they led marches against oppression, against you know people working 16 hours in factories, child labor, all kinds of abuses. Mm-hmm. So the eight-hour workday was their cause. And uh, yes, why we have labor laws, because people fought, people were vilified, people were thrown in jail. The people were Lucy Parsons, that woman of color, and, you know, her husband and some men, spoiler alert, they were hung for their beliefs. Mm. So if you ever feel bad about standing up for your beliefs with conviction, the Haymarket Affair will show you that... It was worth it. That's why people like us are not working in factories for two cents, Mm -hmm. 16 hours a day right now. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like it takes people like that. They really don't make them like that anymore, kind of. But for the ones who do exist like that, who I think embody the spirit of Lucy Parsons, I use a hashtag Lucy lives. Mm -hmm. She lives through today's activist. All Mm -hmm. the young people who aren't afraid to speak up about, you know, any any small injustices like mistreating Mm -hmm. An Asian elder, like, you know, if you're going Mm -hmm. to be mean to a 70-year-old Asian woman, I'm going to tell you to 
cut it the fuck out and, and I will call you out problem. on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have severe problems, especially if you tout yourself, you know, as whatever yeah. Asian pride. And so, yeah, May Day is very important to me. And mm. I've been in marches downtown and participated mm. in using your voice and using your body on the street mm. in, in protest. I've been in protest. Mm. I mean, I grew up outside of DC. So protesting is natural <laughs> to me. You know, mm. Participated in, in civic things or, you know, even as simple as let's get more bike lanes or, you know, let's help people in a hospice to mm. going to North Dakota for the, the no dappled pipeline, mini Waconi situation out there in Standing Rock. So yeah. I'm happy that I was there at certain points in history or Occupy St. Paul's for the Occupy movement when I was in London and mm. I've gotten pictures and done some documentary work on these situations. So May Day is hugely important to me. And of course, the fall of Saigon, because people don't look enough to this interconnectedness. Our countries of America and Vietnam would never not be connected. Again, people like Ocean Vuong exist because there were Americans in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm an American is because of that war. I, I, mm -hmm. I didn't grow up, you know, like my family wasn't aiming to be American, mm -hmm. but here we are. And mm -hmm. uh, here I am speaking English. Like that was not my first language, mm -hmm. but I'll kick anybody's butt in, uh, you know, a test of standard written English test. <laughs> Grammar, I'll get you. And yeah, so mm. both of these things have hugely shaped me and they happen to be right next to each other. So I, I think mm. that's interesting. And I wanted to just draw attention to the plights of the, the marginalized Vietnamese American women, Southeast Asian American women who get paid less than other Asian counterparts. And again, like I love that we're getting Vietnamese American stories. I mean, Go Viet Tan Nguyen and Ocean Vuong. They've yeah. both been kind to me. I'd like to see some women in the mix too. Mm -hmm. Our men of color are great all over <laughs> the BIPOC sphere when they're allies. But yeah, you know, women are often neglected. So we've only gotten Lily Hayslip's story that Oliver Stone directed. Yeah. I think it's also about the right story, right? Yeah. You want the right story out there. Well, the, I think it's great that you are talking about these events, the Fall of Saigon, May Day, because I, yeah, I don't think we hear about them. And one thing is that in history, history is important. And if we don't keep on sharing those events, they get forgotten, right? And we yes. lose the perspective. And it's interesting because I actually didn't hear about May Day until I started living in China. So when I moved to China, that's the only reason why I heard about May Day, because I think you said that even that Haymarket Affair event that happened in the U.S., I feel like the U.S. doesn't really celebrate May Day at all. Right. We do. You know, there are marches in various cities. Uh, this information. Feel. That is the thing. Exactly. And I try yeah. to cover as a magazine writer, journalist, and as a screenwriter, things that people don't pay attention to that are so significant in our world mm -hmm. that, you know, we're led by women of color that people just ignore or don't give mm -hmm. credit to. Again, mm -hmm. we have certain women to thank for literally our lives and the quality of our lives that people don't know. And honestly, South America understands May Day better than North America. Mm -hmm. um, sure. You know, it's more widely celebrated on so many other continents, like you said. Yeah. And that's that situation where you're global, but America just doesn't even acknowledge or <laughs> look around. We deny our history. Well, so, China uh, actually has like a five-day holiday for me first. Uh, it is for, it's for, it's for, the, it's known as the labor holiday. Yes, we have to honor like, labor. Like, like Labor Day, but our, our Labor Day is in September, and it's not. I don't even know what it really means. 
Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> what people go yeah. to the beach. That's not what it's about. Let me tell you what it's about. Yes, it's yeah. about honoring people who literally broke their backs and literally bent over backwards to, you know, put themselves in danger to say, you can't do that to us. You cannot yeah. make us work to earn you money and give us no rights and not care about our health care, et cetera. Like I was, I was lucky enough, again, one of my bosses I'm still friends with, Kevin McLeod in New York City, we worked for the SEIU through his mother. You know, we helped build out a website to have union members have ways to track things and, you know, think about putting their kids through college and just to elevate the quality of life mm. for everyone. So I'm really fucking pissed off at people like J.D. Vance who call it a class war to take care of the poorest in society. Children, poor children, what are you supposed to do? It's it's horrendous to me. And as you can tell in my <laughs> voice, like I, I'm very adamant about this change just to help our most vulnerable, whether it be, you know, children, who need food and, and daycare because your parents already have to work. My parents worked, you know, <laughs> I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time yeah. alone as a child or because of charity. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was basically home alone, latchkey, latchkey. Yeah, yeah. Like that's Same. why, you know, for like watching a lot of television or something Same. like that, you know, that's yeah. how I learned about America and U.S. culture <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, right? Parallel lives, exactly. And so, yeah. yeah, two of my staunch causes stem from May Day. And of course, we need to listen to more women of color and we need to listen to the most marginalized segments of society and listen to the most marginalized women of color and make things about diversity, inclusion, and accessibility. Mm. Yeah. And have you read anything lately or seen any television shows or films that give you more hope and inspiration that you're seeing these type of stories come to life more often on screen? Hmm, that is tricky. <laughs> A few here and there, and I know we have representation, but I will say, again, I do pay attention to who is behind the camera. So mm -hmm. if white people are putting words in Asian people's mouths, I will still have an issue with that because mm -hmm. it doesn't really lend to authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if I were to do a project, I would pay more attention to certain things. Again, it's not my say, but mm -hmm. I am glad certain things uh, exist. And, you know, I can relate to all kinds of things. I know that there have been big Asian pushes to view shows, reality shows about mm -hmm. that have stemmed from crazy rich Asians. And again, yes, whatever humanity is in part of people, I can relate to that. But I personally would want things even more relatable to a larger base of humanity so that people feel less alone mm -hmm. than like, you know, still us and them sometimes. And there's still this divisiveness in our media and, and lack of authenticity, or we can change it up a, li a little bit, let's say. Well, you make a great point that it's not just about the people that you see on screen, right? Mm -hmm. And I would go even further that it's not just about the writers. I think it's about the also the directors, also the producers, also the executives, also the mm. department heads, like yes. basically people who have authority and decision making across mm -hmm. the entire project, right? Because films take a village basically to get done. So you every mm -hmm. key department, you need to have it's the the the, the representation. 
right? Whether right. it's gender or racial or mm-hmm. country, depending on your project, right? Like right. you need to have that kind of authenticity, as you, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, and that's why... Really representative. Exactly. You and I are friends because we believe in that. And we believe in being, you know, Asian Americans who pay attention to these things. Like, again, even with Start With Eight Hollywood, Start With Eight, or my personal screenplays, it's that whole excuse of we can't find X, not just because you can't find them on Google, but like for me, you know, I, I wrote a feature screenplay about generations of Vietnamese American women. And through just having an Instagram account or, or talking with people, I could find specifically Vietnamese American directors, DPs, mm-hmm. not just, you know, hair and makeup, mm-hmm. costumers, musicians. I know two Vietnamese American post-production specialists now through an introduction. Mm-hmm. It's like I can basically populate the entire casting group <laughs> with mm-hmm. Vietnamese American women. So if I can do that, if I have enough contacts to have it be a majority of people who are like the main characters, then it's it's doable. Because for me personally, I can tell when a man writes a rom-com because I'm always like, woman would never do that. <laughs> so when someone is putting words in, you know, an Asian woman character's mouth, I'm like, mm, an Asian woman wouldn't do that. So I can get nitpicky because I am also a critic that I can go, aha. And then when I do look in the credits, I'm like, aha, <laughs> when I'm right. But also too, I get disappointed when I see Asian Americans who rise and you see that they have a position on a show or something else. And then you actually don't see an Asian American character or something. I'm like, I don't know. I can't say again, I can't say these are just wishes for me. I'm, mm-hmm. I know that there are different levels of things and power structures, but I, I would just love it if people felt more of a freedom to be able to speak up or felt like they yeah. had the power to ask for Yeah. And I think it does take time because not all of us are, not everyone wants to, whatever you want to, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it, like rock the boat or to speak up or whatever, you know? And so, yes. And, but I think the more we talk about it, hopefully we give those folks the perspective and understanding that it is important, right? One thing I did want to ask you also is, so I'm a firm believer in, because you mentioned coming from Vietnam and this is not, not necessarily like it didn't happen accidentally, right? This is something that happened through the arc of history. I am a firm believer in, for example, I'm Chinese. My mom is born from the in the mainland, and then my dad is from Taiwan. And so I have a firm belief of trying to figure out how I can connect to both mainland China and Taiwan. And I think that there's a lot of potential there, whether you want in storytelling and networking and financing projects. What is your view on that? And have you tried to do any of that with either the Vietnamese diaspora around the world or the Asian (laughs) diaspora around the world? Great question. Yeah, I have spoken with, you know, Asian American women, Vietnamese American women, and the, the treatment is very different across the board. Some are extra, extra welcoming. And I think it's amazing to have uh, these new friends so we can commiserate and and plot because we want the same things. And some still live by principles of scarcity or there can only be one and just aren't receptive to all rising at the same time because Mm -hmm. they have fears about what, I don't know, people stealing their thunder or I don't know, but it's just terrible because when you treat another human being poorly, you close that door on a whole universe that they 
could have shared with you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So again, people need to be able to look in a mirror, all kinds of diasporas. And I've spoken with this about this and seen threads on it in other quote unquote minority groups too. We have to admit when there are fractures, we have to admit that we are not perfect. We have to admit where we falter and maybe don't support each other enough because there sure are enough people who come to me with enough examples where they feel there has been wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are two sides to that coin. Like I'm so lucky I'm surrounded by awesome Vietnamese American women even, and more and more come out of the woodwork and have stories for me. So you just never know where those stories will go. You got to watch out for those writers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of great talent. That's the thing. And it's up to us all to find the talent and work with them and to mm -hmm. help each other. Yeah, um, I sure try to. Definitely, you know, just having the access. But some people feel like it's very proprietary, like this is their community. And how dare you help them? Like I'm writing an article exposing good yeah. stuff. Like, oh, yes, okay. I, like, like, what? <laughs> I, I got okay. you, I got you. Yeah, but, you have uh, to expose, yeah, that's what I was going to say, like, there, there, are the, there are people doing good things, so yeah, I'm glad, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. I'm featuring, like, eight Southeast Asian American writers, screenwriters. Great. So I'm ready to share the wealth, and I want attention on all kinds of stories, like, not yep. just mine. I'm not the Vietnamese American woman, yep. anything. I'm in yeah. a wonderful, buoyant sea of other Vietnamese American women. And I'm writing another article that features another handful of Asian American women <laughs> for another magazine. So yeah, I, I'm ready to share other people's stories as well within my power or any small privilege I have because of my connections as well. And I would like to see more of that. And I think there's a huge lack of that because people are like, won't look in that mirror, think yeah. everything is proprietary or scarce. I mean, I love that you're doing that. And I think it's so important because that's, you know, when you see all these other lists out there and uh, yeah, that's important because people pay attention to that type of media. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is because there are folks that I've gotten to know that are like, we need to hear these perspectives. And we also need to talk a little bit more amongst all of us in the entertainment industry and raise the issues because not everyone understands all these issues right and so it's okay because everyone takes their time everyone's busy not everyone can be superhuman like you <laughs> <laughs> i have clone um, yeah but on that i i do want to ask you you do all these things you are so busy what are some things that you do for self-care I lay down and watch home renovation shows and ghost hunting shows. Ghost? Oh, so give us some recommendations. What are your favorites? <laughs> You're going to laugh. Shout out to my ghost bros and ghost broettes. I actually have a group of Twitter friends who are all screenwriters of different races and genders. And we watch episodes of Ghost Adventures. And that. we have a good laugh. And yes. uh, we, we quote unquote live tweeted. I know it's so dorky, but because we get such a kick out of the ghost hunters on that show and that it's, just, it's stress relief to go. Hmm. Plus, I mean, I don't know. A lot of us in that group are horror writers. So we like, you know, to 
watch spooky stuff. And that was a thing that we did during the pandemic. And I love it. We all live in different cities anyway. So, you know, if anyone wants to get our, our ghost adventures watching group together in person, we're very open to any sponsors helping us get to a haunted house together after the pandemic. Because, yeah, we're all just screenwriters with good aims who support each other. And this is what we do to have a, a good giggle. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Okay, cool. And then you also have your dogs, one mm -hmm. or more? Two. Two. And how, yeah. how old are they? Oh, goodness gracious. Like we're all senior citizens here. Okay. One is <laughs> 14 and uh, one is I think nearly 10 and I'm a dinosaur. So we all get along is that we crawl around together and we look for trees. What are their names? Now we have a bee who she's a beagle chihuahua. Okay. And we have a, a Jasper who's a reverse vampire chihuahua because he's got two bottom teeth and her fangs because he has oh. to have his top two pulled out. Looks very cute though. That's one thing I started doing recently. I started uh, volunteering at a dog rescue right near Jason. Me. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Also, like, I mean, I don't, I don't think I call it self care, but I was like, I just wanted to, you know, be around. I love dogs, and so I was like, I, I don't think I'm ready to own one, uh -huh. but I was like, it was a cool, it's a cool way for me to er interact with them. That's another reason we really get along. No, exactly. Dogs are good people. I mean, dogs are better people than some people, some human people. So there you go. Yep. That is, there's a, there's an element of truth there. <laughs> Dog people know. Yeah. And I guess last question for you is what is advice that you would give your, you know, post-college self, like your 20 year old self? What would you, yeah. what would you say it's, back to your young self? It's weird. I know that it's a question that, that gets asked here and there, but I re recently did think about that. Like, what could I have done differently? Would I have saved myself time? But in retrospect, there's nothing differently that could have been done because all the experiences do lead you exactly to where you need to be. And I know I'm not just a California hippie. I know the sunshine might have taken over my head when I say these things. Mm. But again, it's easy for human beings to dwell on the bad things but I think it's most important not to lose sleep over dumbasses who are trying to derail you because <laughs> they probably don't like themselves. And when you look at their lives, you see why you have to focus. That's an important lesson to realize mm -hmm. right there. Absolutely. And it's not just a being sensitive thing or whatever. It's just don't waste time on the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Some people are just out there trying to provoke people who are flying monkeys because they a have nothing better to do. B, don't like themselves. So those are two things I would tell a younger person frustrated by the world to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. I, I have been frustrated and have had my moments of grace. And as the years go by, I luckily don't lose sleep over <laughs> certain things and, and laugh at them. And I was uh, speaking to the wonderful Kate Park today, the mm. real Kate Park of Los Angeles. And she gave me the best pep talk about humanity and how people will just, uh, we got to sit back and laugh at some people. So that's one bit of advice I would tell myself. Yes. Yes. Think of it, it's all funny and then put them in a screenplay, kill them and call it a satire. And uh, that's what I tell myself to do more of that. <laughs> and uh, yes, get dogs earlier in life <laughs> because I used to look at dog people and go, Oh my God, <laughs> are they crazy? But well, no, I, no, I was going to say it's a lot of work, right? <laughs> 
Yes, it is. But it's it's much more well worth it. Or maybe I would have told myself that I didn't need to go out all the time when I was younger. I mean, there were months where I went out every single night. Sure, like I couldn't just be young. in my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe I could have done better time management. Then, of course, I could have done better meal management because I still eat like a three-year-old. But those are just really just basic, typical, silly things. But yeah, overall, maybe, again, easy thing to say, but, you know, maybe having committed to taking screenwriting earlier or mm. believing my in myself enough to know that I had it in myself to tell stories with complete beginning, middles, and ends. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that you can be doing for, you know, the rest of your life, right? Who the hell knows? We'll see. Yeah. But, you and know, I've got other wherever, stuff to keep me busy. Takes you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're certainly doing enough, enough things. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking your perspective with me and with the listeners. Really appreciate it. And I'm going to link to your socials and to your website on show notes so people can find you and we can all do the, I want to do the ghost hunting <gasps> Twitter thing with Come you guys. Come on over. Oh that my sounds goodness. really cool. Dogs and, and online ghost hunting. I mean, there barely needs to be any more to life. For me. And some good food. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, gosh, thank you for hanging out and yeah. I've, I've missed it. And I, I've so enjoyed this afternoon with you and getting to spend time with you again on these two big days, you know, yeah, the, the between April 30th and, and May 1st, big deal, big, yes. big energy out there. Yes. So yes. I, I get that from you and I'm very fortunate to, to know you. So this yeah. has been another great stint of quality time. Likewise. Thank you, Tope. I really appreciate it. I look forward to chatting with you again soon and hopefully at some point in person. Oh yeah, and sharing more good news because yeah. we're, we're doing We fun need stuff. more good news. And it's coming, what's Jason. What's going on, yeah. Exactly. All right, thanks. All right. Have a good weekend Thank and you. I'll see you soon. Okay, I hope that. Thanks for listening in to another episode of The Linsider. Please rate, review, and leave comments for the podcast. It really helps people discover the podcast. It takes time to do this podcast, and thank you for taking this journey with me. But it really helps if you would help rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. See you next week. Bye.